Job 16, verse 6 says, Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? And I think it just captures that tension that is there in grief. It's like no matter what I do, if I, if, if I say something, that doesn't help. And if I'm silent, that doesn't help. You, are, you feel that you're in this helpless, hopeless place. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is a truth that we could not know on our own. We couldn't figure this out. We couldn't deduce this on our own. But God has been pleased. Notice this passage begins, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This is from the mouth of God. This is the truth. This is what's going to happen. And therefore, you can be comforted. You can comfort one another with these words. That's our comfort, is the word of God, the living word of God, the word that abides forever. The one sure thing, the Word of God. I don't have words that can do that. I don't have words of my own that can do that. So no matter what I say to you in your grief, apart from the Word of God, they are of little comfort. I can express sympathy and concern and a number of things like that, but I cannot do what the Word of God itself can do. Of course, if we don't believe the Word, if we're not looking to the Word, if we're not self-consciously trusting the word and we kind of let it roll off of us, then it doesn't have the effect. But I'm urging you now to resolve that, you know, these are the things I know. I know whatever God has told me. That's what I know. And so that's the certain thing. C.S. Lewis said, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort. But it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing. And it is of no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through the dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. So it's the truth that matters. It's the thing that is absolutely true that we can stand on even when we don't feel like it. I say this sometimes to people who are getting married. The promises you're making, the vows you're making, are more important, actually, than the feelings you're feeling. Because there will be days in your marriage when those feelings are not there, when you want to wring his neck. And uh, you want to, you're in this tension, but you made promises. You made, you gave your word. You, you, get, you have vows that you stand on that get you through those moments when the feelings ebb. 
Same thing in grief. I want to stand on the truth. I don't feel like it. Uh, again, the opening statement, If I, when I speak, my grief's not relieved. If I'm silent, how am I eased? I want to stand on the word. So grief is complicated because relationships and people are complicated. They are hard to understand. They're even harder to explain. And as a result, we tend to avoid these kinds of subjects rather than face them. We're reluctant to dive into situations that are uncertain. Somebody is grieving. There's a loss. Again, grief, we think of it primarily as as it pertains to death, but grief can come in loss of a job or a divorce or Uh, any number of things that can produce grief, anything that turns our world upside down. And in those situations, we don't know what to say, and so what we end up doing frequently is saying nothing. We don't know what to do, and so we do nothing. We certainly don't want to be like Job's comforters, where we're actually causing harm, giving uh, poor counsel, Therefore, it's important for us to understand what we can about grief and the comfort of the grieving. So the Bible does have something to say about both those things. And we know that Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. Moreover, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So every person's grief is unique and has its own special set of sorrows and strong emotions. So no, there are no two people. I can't say, well, I I know what you feel, and and mean by that that I know exactly what you feel. While your broken leg doesn't help my broken uh, leg feel any better, uh, nevertheless, um, your broken leg does enable you to sympathize better with my broken leg. But saying something that's true, in this case, that grief is unique to the individual, and I think this is really important because sometimes the person grieving is, is kind of, there's a part of us that's kind of pushing people away. We really, we want them there, but we don't. We, you know, there's, everything seems awkward, and so it's easy for me to be extra sensitive if I'm grieving and to say, well, that, they shouldn't have said that, and that was a dumb thing to say, um, but while it's true that my grief is individual to me and the circumstances are individual to me, there does remain a unifying experience uh, that is genuine and helpful. The Bible tells us, for example, in Romans 12:15, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. I am to come alongside those who are grieving. We should honor and respect both the individual and the corporate nature of grief. So there is a private part, there is a unique part, an individual part, but there is also a corporate part. I'm part, I'm part of something bigger than myself when I'm grieving. And that's a good thing. Let me also point out, and again, I think this is very important, that your joy is also uniquely your joy, not just grief. In fact, every aspect of your life is uniquely yours. That is, your marriage is yours, but it's not just yours. Your marriage impacts everybody else. Your children are your children uniquely, but they're also other people's children in a different way. So it's not, we're not just BBs in a jar here. We're connected. Uh, we're never alone. Your joy, your sorrow, your life 
These are always connected and tied into the community's joy and sorrow and life. If we're cut off, or if we cut ourselves off from the community, from family, from the church, from friends, etc., then both our joys and our griefs are actually diminished. If I'm just doing all of this alone somewhere, and I'm not sharing it, I'm not having any help in this, or even in the delight of it, then we are. Then both those things are diminished. I remember Pastor Wilkins once commented at a pastor's conference, observing that one day, he said, I saw this beautiful sunset, but no one was at home for him to share that experience with. He's like, hey, come look at this. Mary Nell and I will do that sometimes. Come look at this sunset, or look at this picture. We want to share things with others, and in doing so, uh, our joy is is completed. We have a shared experience because the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. So for each person, all things are unique and personal as well as corporate. I cannot feel exactly what you feel. You don't even feel the same moment to moment, right? Even if you're grieving, you have it's it's a, it's a roller coaster. So five minutes from now, you're going to feel different. So how could I possibly feel exactly what you feel in any given moment? But here's what I can do. Here's what you can do with others is I can love you. I can sympathize with you. I can weep with you. I can help you bear your burden. Maybe it's not a lot. Maybe it's a little. Just being here may help you bear that burden. I can comfort you and comfort you with the words of Scripture. I can pray with you. I can stand with you. Sometimes just standing next to someone or being in the room with them, sending a card, making a call. And even if I have not experienced anything like what you've experienced, Jesus has. Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So we can always come alongside one another and help, which is our priestly function. We are, in that sense, standing with that person, and we take them to God. We pray for them. We lift them up to the Lord. We can all, and again, we represent the Lord in that too. We're the we're part of the body of Christ. So if you think about how the body functions, when one part is injured, the other parts compensate or send help to that part of the body that's wounded in order for it to heal. Uh, we can always, again, come alongside. We can help point the way to Jesus who is the, and, and to the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. We, and we act on behalf of the Holy Spirit. We are the, again, we are the body of Christ. We are enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we over-mystify that. But when you act in love toward another part of the body... That's the Spirit working through you to serve them. That's not just you doing something. That's the Holy Spirit doing something through you. And so we can remind one another, for example, of what we already know. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. I can remind you of that. You know that, but you need to hear it again right now. We all need to be reminded of what we know. And and though, frankly, the truth... um, the truth is that we sometimes just don't want to hear it. I don't want you to tell me. I, I want I want to, there's a sense, and I want to be careful here, but 
and we do need to be careful if we are grieving, if we're depressed, if we're sad, that I want to wallow in that. Um, and there's a proper way to do it. We should grieve. We should weep. We should feel sad. We should have all those feelings. But I, you, it's like anything else that we should do, we can do it too much. We can go a step too far, and then it becomes harmful. Then, it, then it's not where we need to be. So you can, you can fall off the horse on either side, as, as it were, into either ditch. So even if the relief is not immediate, uh, we need to remember that uh, we do know that God's word is effective. So it's not that I'm going to say something and instantly in the moment everything's changed. Uh, but over time, those, those, that, the application of the healing of God's word and spirit do bring about that effect. Isaiah 55:11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void, but shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And some of the words of God, as we've already read in 1 Thessalonians, are there to comfort us when we grieve. That's its purpose. So when we give those, they will accomplish that. Maybe not, again, it may not be instantaneous, but it will, it will come. So I know that we can make a difference for one another. Not just wishful thinking here. I know that because the Bible tells me so. Words do comfort, as 1 Thessalonians 4.18 tells us. Comfort one another with these words. When a child bumps their head and they run to mommy and she kisses it and gives them a hug and she assures them it'll be all right, sure enough, a miracle takes place. It's better now. Almost instantly sometimes, you know, if there's no blood involved, that may take a little longer, but um, just go right back to playing again, right? Um, but it's not just any words. What we have are the words of life. As a pastor, I have to remind myself of that. It's not my counsel. It's not just you know, my wisdom. What I, what, what I really ultimately have is the word of God. That's the true thing. Balm applied to a wound. Uh, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, so speaking of the inspired scriptures, Peter admonishes concerning their power in Second Peter 1.19, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And I thought, well, that's really applicable to grief, right? Listen to that. Light that shines in a dark place. Grief is a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. We keep applying the balm of God's word to the grieving. So let me remind you of the power of words. Words are symbolic of thought. They are representative of intent and action. Words are themselves a form of behavior. If I threaten to punch you in the nose, that's violence. It's not the same as me punching you in the nose, but it's close. It creates emotion and fear. And it has an impact on you. And, uh, and, and so that's in a negative sense, but of course it works the other way. God's words are powerful. And God's words go forth, and when they do, when God says, let there be light... There's light. God's words change 
the world, and they change us. Lazarus, come forth. So they create, uh, God's words create and generate new things. They sustain old things, upheld by the word of your power. All things are upheld by the word of his power. And they even resurrect and regenerate the dead. That's what his word does. So as creatures who are made in the image of God and having been given the unique ability of language, remember we're images, again, images of God, he's given us language, our words are also then powerful. They too form are forms of behavior that reveal character. Our words can edify or wound. Our, our violent words, again, are a form of violence, and soothing words are a form of comfort. Just think of the words... I love you. I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you. The quality of our words has the power to affect the situation. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So our words impact the feelings and emotions of others. And certainly with grief, there are a lot of feelings and emotions taking place. And again, back to 1 Thessalonians 4.18, where it says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In times of sadness, sorrow, and grief, we, if someone else is, we feel it ourselves, as Job did, but as we're applying it to someone else, we feel helpless. But God has given us this kind of salve, which when used wisely can bring real comfort and real blessing. So when we bring God's word, our words of kindness and encouragement, words of truth, we remind one another what we often, again, already know but need to hear again, and sometimes the impact or the effect of those words, again, come in the moment. That's exactly what I needed to hear right then, and other times they come later upon reflection. In fact, if you think about it, when it comes to, say, an argument, let's say a theological argument, it's rare that in the middle of an argument someone is convinced and lays down their flag and says, okay, you're right and I'm wrong. Think about your own journey. What's happened? You've engaged in debates and conversations, but over time, that ha- you know, little by little, you're wrestling with this, and maybe one night at your house, there's an aha moment where all of that comes rushing in. So all those conversations, debates, and arguments actually were doing something, but it took time for that to bear fruit. Um, Praying with someone's a great way to bring words of comfort as you weep with those who weep and you make your request known to God. Uh, there's so much going on there when we do that. The fact that you prayed, the fact that you prayed for them, the fact that you ask, have specific requests, grant them your comfort, your peace, um, all those kinds of things are very powerful uh, in the moment. Uh, I think sometimes... We are doing when we're doing the work of God. Sometimes we don't even realize it, or we think, "Oh, that I didn't mean much," or "That was a little thing." Look, it's a, a thousand little things that make a difference. You do that every day if you're a mom and you're taking care of little children. That's God's work: changing diapers, preparing meals, giving naps, collapsing on the couch, getting up and doing it some more. Um, all those tears, the joys. Dad's same thing, the work you do day in and day out. This isn't busy work that we have. This is the work that God's called us to. 
and comforting those who are grieving is part of that work. And every little bit uh, eases the burden a bit. Um, so um, Paul understood, Ephesians 6, 21 and 22, but that you may also know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychius, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. They were worried about Paul and worried about the ministry, and so he sends a messenger actually to comfort them uh, and to let them know what's going on. So again, words, a message comes, and it's comforting. So how do we deal then with the death of a loved one? And uh, So we need to focus on how to comfort one another and how to obtain God's gift of comfort and peace. There are many paradoxes and mysteries, of course, in the Bible. And for me, one of the greatest ones is found in James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work or maturing work in you that you may be mature or perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So remember, the unbeliever, for him, Pain is just pain. Trials are just trials. They're just an aggravation. They have no ultimate purpose and meaning. But for us, why? Because God's let us know that he's at work in those things. Even when I don't know exactly, remember in the case of Job, the why and the how, I do know that it is at work. And so um, how can you find joy in the midst of of a severe trial, and yet this is what God calls me and you to do. Now, joy, again, doesn't mean put on a smiley face and, and act like nothing's wrong because something is wrong. But it says, but joy is something deeper than that. Joy is not just happiness. Happiness is more a surface thing. But I can have joy even when there's really hard things going on. Why? The joy comes from the joy that Jesus had as he went to the cross. How do you have joy about the cross? Because he saw what he was doing. He saw you. He saw me. He saw what his suffering was going to accomplish. He knew there was a purpose in this great suffering. And so he counted it all joy himself in the greatest trial ever. So... An explanation is provided in this text which indicates that God is at work in the trial to accomplish his perfecting or maturing work in us and in others. Secret things are going on behind the scenes. God's doing things. Things that will surprise us and even delight us, if not today, then at some point in the future. Obviously, ultimately, in glory, when we have an even clearer image of everything. Suffering is unpleasant, but in Christ, suffering is not without meaning and purpose. So at the center of giving comfort and in being comforted is a central truth that must be communicated and, if you're grieving, it must be received. This is a two-way street. Romans 5, 4, For whatever things were written in the Bible before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. That's what the Bible is, why the Bible is given to us. 
Apart from the Scriptures, there's no basis for hope, and the Scriptures were written to give us hope. It tells us all kinds of stories, and stories almost inevitably involve something bad, something hard, something grievous. There's death, there's pain, there's defeat. But what else is there? There's victory. We see how the Lord works through those stories and how there's a, another part of this. We get to the happy ending, if you will. So let's go straight to the most comforting truth in all the Bible. What is that? God's revelation regarding the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection really happened, and that changes everything. This is the central event. The Bible says that at the return of Jesus Christ, everyone who has been a faithful follower of him will be raised in the resurrection. Again, first, I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 again. I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So John 11, for example, tells the story of Lazarus' death and resurrection. You'll recall that not only did Jesus not criticize the family and friends of Lazarus for weeping, he also wept. He said, oh, everything's going to be okay. The Bible teaches us to sympathize and to empathize with others who are grieving. After someone's death, it's important for loved ones and friends to spend time together and to reminisce, to talk about their memories, memories that bring forth warm reflection, tears, and even laughter. This recalls the value of the life that we are now separated from. When someone wants to talk about a deceased loved one, we should be attentive listeners. Don't try to change the subject. I can't. I can remember in my first experience with death as a young teenager, um, and many years ago, people protected quote protected children from death. Now we go back a couple of generations before that. That wasn't the case, because death was present in the home. Bodies would lay in state in your home. Uh, but there was a period I know in my youth. Uh, so, for example, both when my grandfather died in 1968 and my uncle in 1969, I noticed two things. First, in both cases, uh, uh, as family and friends, they had gathered at my grandparents' house, there was a blend of tears and laughter, which is appropriate. Second, the grief was much more pronounced with the death of my uncle than it was with my grandfather. The difference between the death of my grandfather, who had been disabled by a stroke since 1957 and had recently been very ill, compared to the sudden death of my uncle, who was in an accident at age 43 with a wife and six children, was dramatically different. Um, 
Nevertheless, in both cases, there were both joyful remembrances, there were joyful remembrances in the midst of great grief. So we all have been through certain trials which equip us to be of great comfort to others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So as we go through these things, as we learn to be comforted, is also going to enable us to be... Think about that. If, if somebody's trying to talk to me about any subject that they've had no experience with, that's not all that helpful. But when someone has been through something uh, similar, then that's of greater comfort. I at least know they, they can grasp and perceive some of what I'm going through. Um, one of the ways our trials benefit us is that we learn compassion for others. And, our, and, and the comfort that we receive, again, teaches us how to give comfort. We especially should not overlook the needs of children or hide death from them. Uh, Marinelle, when her father passed away when she was a young girl, uh, just she's talking about how kind of strange it was. She knew he'd been ill, didn't know how ill, came home from school, uh, a relative took her aside and told her that he had passed away, and then they immediately got her busy doing things. I think uh, she went with some friends that evening. You know, we just want to, okay, they, they, the children kind of got pushed to the side, and we, we don't want them to have to think about this. We'll just keep them occupied. My cousin, uh, who was a few years older than me when my grandfather died, and I was probably, I don't know how old I was, 68. Somebody do the math. I was 13, so he was like 15. He said, they didn't even let me go to the funeral because I was too young to go to my grandfather's funeral. So we don't want to upset the children. Um, and so, um, and I do think, by the way, maybe this is a, just an aside and more of a speculation, but I think, for example, uh, children have experienced uh, uh, the death of a pet or an animal in their life, and that's hard, and there's often tears and sadness, but it prepares us for bigger things in life as well. And don't treat those things lightly. Those are occasions to comfort your children and to teach them about life and death. So after a death, they often don't know, children don't know what to think and say, what questions uh, uh, to ask or how to express their emotions. They need understanding, comfort, reassurance. They need to be filled with love, security, and hope. They need to be with family, sharing in the discussions, grieving, and healing. So what are some of the ways I can help others during their time of sorrow? 1 John 3:16 and 18, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So as we have seen, though, words of comfort have powerful healing effect, but more than words are needed. Remember that the family of someone who's just died is faced with innumerable stresses, decisions, and arrangements in addition to the daily demands. We'll talk next week about what's going on in grief. But it's frustrating and exhausting to lose a loved one and to hardly have time to think because you're frantically rushing from one 
responsibility, one decision to the next, so it can be helpful to offer specific help to families who are mourning. Instead of saying something like, if I can help, let me know, a better thing would be to offer some specific help, or better yet, just do something that helps. Little things make a difference. And if you're in mourning, be willing, if you're the one mourning, be willing to gratefully accept offers of help, even if you don't think you need it. Even the many offers of food. I've seen people say, oh, we want to bring some food. Oh, we got plenty of food. Don't say that. Just take it. It's your fourth ham. That's all right. You can give it to somebody else. Let people do that. That's how they love you. That's how they show it. And it. And sometimes, think about it, God gives us all kinds of things that aren't necessary, right? He lavishes us with unnecessary goodness. And that's what we, that's how we, one of the ways we help. Cards, letters, phone calls, your presents, signing the guest book, coming to the funeral, uh, sending flowers, bringing a cake, all kinds of ways to do that. Those are little things, but there are other things. Can I watch the kids? Can I... You know, give somebody a ride. You need our homes available. People are coming in. There's lots of ways that you can step up and help. So you see beyond the things themselves. Recognize that your community is entering into your situation and that this is an expression of love. So what spiritual lessons can we learn from life's losses and sorrows? So while you're ministering to others, God will also be ministering to you. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart, the heart is made better. You know, if, if life was all fun and birthday cake, uh, we wouldn't take life very seriously, but it's the griefs and the sorrows that cause us to stop and say, am I focused on the things that matter, things that are important? Is there a relationship that I need to mend? Is there somebody I need to go see? Is there something I need to be doing in my life to prepare for that day, for me, for my family? Back to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning." but the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. If you're always being silly and cutting up and everything in life is a joke, that is really unwise. Ecclesiastes 3.4, There is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Know the difference. Spiritual growth takes place more in difficult times than it does in easy times. You know that. So when a loved one dies, it's a valuable time to reflect on your own mortality and your relationship with God. I know as a pastor, when I have funerals, I know there's an opportunity. I've got everybody's attention. God has everybody's attention. Some are believers who need encouraging and comforting, and others are unbelievers who need to wake up. So some people avoid funerals and avoid visiting people in hospitals and nursing homes because these situations make them feel uncomfortable and unhappy. But to be a healer, you have to go where people are hurting. And if you do, your unselfishness will help you mature and grow. And I believe it will also give you 
joy and happiness in the process. I want to close by reading uh, a piece. Um, I actually don't even know who wrote it. Uh, it's short, but it, three things never to say at a funeral. Um, when it comes to grief and loss, Dr. Brene Brown, a research professor at the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work, says, rarely does a response make something better. What makes something better is a connection. When trying to comfort a good friend or family member during the death of a loved one, we usually find ourselves searching for the right words to say, but often our words unintentionally derail the grieving process. The words we say uh, to the grieving are usually meant to comfort, but sometimes they become grief deflectors. We like to pull our friends and family members out of their despair and into hope, sometimes, but sometimes we just need to be present with them in the darkness. Grief, lament, sorrow, these are all part of life. In fact, the Bible as a whole book, uh, has a whole book dedicated to grief and mourning called Lamentations. And it's there for good reasons. Grief and sorrow create a rich soil for our faith to grow deeper. Here are three things we should probably stop saying to someone who's recently lost a loved one. These simple phrases sound comforting on the surface, but they typically serve as patchwork rather than healing balm to the suffering. If you want to validate someone's loss and give him or her permission to grieve, Stay clear of these phrases and just be present, vulnerable, and make a deeper connection. So number one, they're in a better place. This phrase tends to make the person who's grieving feel like their current struggle isn't credible because if they were truly spiritual, they would know how great this moment really is. It is at best... At its best, this phrase is well-meaning, and at its worst, it can feel like spiritual abuse. When Jesus came to Mary and Martha after his good friend Lazarus died, he did, he did one simple thing. He cried. Cried like a baby. Instead of saying, at least Lazarus is in a better place, Jesus joined the mourners. When it comes to grief, vulnerable empathy always beats the spiritual catchphrase, resist the urge to inject a quick dose of hope and offer your solidarity instead. Number two, at least they're not suffering anymore. Well, when you're going through an earth-shattering loss, you're not looking for the smallest common denominator of hope. No one wants their loved one to suffer, but you still desperately want them to be present. If we go back to Jesus at Lazarus' graveside, I can't imagine him saying to Mary or Martha, well, at least he's not suffering anymore. Jesus was racked with sorrow himself, and through his tears he gave others permission to grieve, human connection at its deepest. Third, time heals all wounds. This could be true, but it's a terrible cliche, and it trivializes the present pain, pointing to the fact that it will heal, just hang in there. A person who loses a loved one is connected to them through their grief. It's hard to separate the two, the grief from the love, during the first stages of a loss. Avoid platitudes and trite phrases. Remember, it's not your job to heal them. It's your job to feel something deep with them 
and give them permission to grieve in the context of their faith. We're not trying to get them to stop grieving. Does that make sense? That's our tent. We want to, if somebody's hurting, we want to take away the pain. And we do want to lighten this. We do want to provide an environment where they can grieve and yet with, with hope. So cry, hug, pray, be present in the midst of the loss. Don't rush people through grief because in doing so, you might help them bypass the very comfort of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that does comfort us. It tells us the truth, the truth about you, the truth about us, the truth about sin and death and sorrow and grief and pain, but also about hope and comfort and promise, and expectation. Help us to take all of that, Lord, and to inculcate it into our lives, to share it with one another. We thank you for this community of believers that you've surrounded us with so that we are not alone, whether it's in grief or joy. Help us to love one another in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.